You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT-FM, broadcasting from the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Hi, I'm Benny Becker, a reporter for WMMT in Whitesburg, Kentucky. You're listening to my interview with Kevin Rashid Johnson, We spoke by phone two days before the start of the 2018 national prison strike. This is Kevin Rashid Johnson. Um, I'm incarcerated at Sussex Storm State Prison. They have me in a specially designed cell on death row. It has double doors, an outside solid steel door with a glass in window. It has a shower inside of it, so I don't have to leave the cell to take showers. So that increases my confinement time inside of the cell. So I remain in my cell at all times except when I go out for wreck, which I'm put inside of a little small cage about the same size of the cell with nothing in it, just a cage in area. And they, by and large, want to keep me isolated from everyone else. What would be the first thing you'd want someone listening to know about you? Well, I would like them to know that I'm a person very interested and very concerned about the conditions under which people are confined in prisons across America in general and in the prisons that I've been confined to in particular. I think the general public has a a very, very distorted idea that is projected to them by prison officials, prison crats, the powers that be about what American prisons are really like and what they're really about. The economic context, the class and racial context of who is targeted with imprisonment, the selective prosecutions, and the heinous abuses that occur inside of American prisons, which are pretty much kept totally insulated from the public. The public is kept out of the prisons by the bars and the razor wire and the steel, I mean, the the, the concrete, as well as those who are inside of these prisons being kept in by those conditions. And the abuses that occur here, I, I really find the proper precedent that I could compare it to would be what you've read about in some of the Nazi Germany concentration camps, the abuses that you've read about probably occurring in the Jim Crow South. Prisoners are beaten to death. I have witnessed a number of prisoners beaten to death. I've witnessed prisoners being hung by guards and their death stage to suicides. I've watched prisoners starve, dehydrated. I've been through a number of abuses over the years myself. I have witnessed every level of abuse, every level of neglect inside of these institutions and targeted most often at prisoners who are mentally disturbed, who don't have outside support, outside resources. They don't have people who would raise their voices and, and, and lend any aid or support to them. And this is these are the main factors that are taken advantage of when guards decide who they want to target for abuse. And again, many, in many cases, they're mentally ill. So they can't articulate complaints, they can't respond, they can't bring attention to their mistreatment. And prisoners who are known to challenge and expose abuses, like myself, which has been a large part of why I've been targeted with, you know, consistent abuses, consistent transfers from prison to prison, state to state, 
They simply dislike that I have used the contacts and exposures that I've had to bring attention to the conditions inside of the prison. And I have a website, uh, RashidMod.com, R-A-S-H-I-D-M-O-D.com, where many of the articles and exposés and reports that I've written about prison conditions are published. They deal with prison conditions in Virginia, where I've been, Oregon, where I've been, Texas, where I've been, and Florida. And uh, I don't know if many prisoners or many people on the inside who have committed their time or resources that they've had to articulate the conditions inside of the prison, but that's something that I have committed a lot of time to doing because these guys otherwise don't have a voice to the outside, and the public is oblivious to the actual conditions and abuses that occur inside of these places. So if I were to describe something about myself that I would want the public to know, it's that I have a major concern with, and I would like to extend that concern and interest to the public about what occurs inside of these hidden institutions in their names and at their taxpayer dollars expense. I've seen the blog you were mentioning, and I also saw you've written two books. Could you tell me a little bit about what's led you to be writing and putting your word out in the world? Okay, yes, I have two books. The first is titled Defying the Tomb, D-E-F-Y-I-N-G, the Tomb, T-O-M-B. It's a collection of uh, exchanges of letters between me and another inside prisoner an autobiography about both of us and various commentaries forward and afterwards by various politically conscious individuals. The book pretty much elaborates in the autobiography my development from having been involved in street-level drug trade up to becoming politically conscious, becoming active in various political circles and trying to educate and open my peers' eyes on political levels give them a broader and a better in-depth understanding of what social conditions, economic conditions are like and why, and what leads to a lot of the conditions and abuses inside of the prison. Uh, my second book is titled Panther Vision. I'm a co-founding member of the New African Black Panther Party, which is a nonviolent, above-ground political party that opposes all forms of discrimination, racial, gender, uh, sexual orientation, national, et cetera. We promote the interest of those who, in general, do not have political representation, which is we promote the interests of the oppressed, the poor, the marginalized, the racially oppressed, et cetera. And the book is a collection of various articles I have written since the founding of our party in 2005 up to 2015. And it's just, just general, generally a broad breakdown of the structure and the political foundation and our philosophy. I don't want to ask you to summarize your book when you've already put so much time into writing it down, but for someone listening who wants kind of a quick sense, could you try and say a little about how did you end up in prison and how you see that fitting into what's going on? Okay, I ended up in prison uh, because of my involvement, as I said, in the street-level drug trade. I was out in the cold by and large and ended up resorting to hustling as a means of survival, as well as I had always tended to identify with the marginalized and the poor sectors of society. So in having resorted to what is called a lumping proletarian or illegitimate capitalism, the criminal world or the criminal underground, that was a large part of my identifying with poor and oppressed people 
because originally my family is middle class. Uh, my father's a doctor and my stepmother's a nurse and the people who've come out of my immediate family have moved up into the upper middle class, that sort of thing. I was I tended to be the black sheep of my family. And I rejected their middle class trappings, the little bourgeois pretensions and they're looking down their noses at the poor and people who are marginalized and I always tended to identify with the poor and the marginalized. So at a young age I kinda disassociated myself from the middle class lifestyle of my family and as I had said, I was kind of a, the black sheep of my family, a little bad guy. So I got bounced between living with my father and living with other relatives. So I had the experience of growing up on both sides of the track. And I most readily identified with people from the poor urban areas. And around uh, my 11th and 12th year, when I came back to Virginia, I started getting into trouble as far as getting locked up for leaving home and running in with the with police and that sort of thing. So I was in and out of the juvenile prison system from age 15. They also had me in and out of various mental institutions because their tendency more often is in the juvenile system to place juveniles into the mental health institutions for psychological evaluations to determine whether or not the, the juvenile is acting out because of mental issues or whether it's a behavioral issue. And for a large part of my youth, I played the mental health game in order to avoid going into the juvenile prison system. So I did a lot of my time both in the juvenile prison system and in various mental health institutions. By and large, I just ended up living amongst the poor. And living amongst the poor, there are not a lot of options for survival, particularly urban poor people. So, as I said, I resorted to selling drugs and ended up not so much on a predatory path dealing with that because I I was really concerned with also developing affinity with the communities that we were doing our thing in which is not to say I was from Robin Hood-type drug dealer, but my thing was to be effective and efficient in the trade and also to have a stable environment to conduct the trade in, one would have to have a sort of stable relationship with the community that you did it in. And I did also consider contributing something back to the community. So a lot of what we made in drug sales, we contributed back to spending in the community. We had, like little weekly galas where we would have block parties and cook up food and give to the kids in the community and set speakers out on the curb and have little dances and that sort of thing. But that led to clashes with the police, clashes with others who were involved in the drug trade competitors, and I ended up being in prison under charges imputed against me for um, murder and to attempt murders. And shooting into an occupied dwelling and they stem from incidents where I was accused of having shot some people who were the police said people who I suspected were undercover police officers but 
it was a whole different set of circumstances. But in any event, I was not provided with the various levels of procedural protections to which I was entitled, which has been the subject of various challenges I've been making in recent years. Uh, as far as being denied the right to self-representation, having never been served with criminal charges in any of the proceedings, they're having deliberately misidentified me as a person who they were originally looking for as a suspect in the crime. And a lot of other uh, procedural violations that they committed that pretty much deprived the court of the jurisdiction to convict or impute the criminal convictions against me. And I have, as I said, I've been attempted to challenge in various stages of in recent years. And I believe that was a large part of what also contributed to them bouncing me around from place to place because each time I've made the challenge, there has been no contest to the fact that I was denied various fundamental rights in the procedures that they applied and pretty much invalidated my imprisonment. But I haven't challenge it using the, the proper procedural mechanisms. But um, that's by and large why I'm being held. The sentence that, I, that I'm being held under is a life sentence, life 43 years, 13 months, and 30 days. Uh, they, they have shuttled between taking me up for parole and then denying my right to go up for parole. They have recalculated the sentence they're holding me under multiple times each time following my challenge of my incarceration. They have said that my sentence began in 1996 and began later than that. And then they said it began in uh, 2000 and uh, what, 2009. They have committed various procedural violations and just played a lot of juggling games with my, my sentence and my the orders that they're holding me under. In my early years, I clashed consistently with the guards. Till ultimately, I met another political prisoner by the name of Anif Shabazz Bay from the Virgin Islands who had been interstate transferred to Virginia. And he was a prisoner who has been involved in various political support movements and had various support from different political groups on the outside. And he turned me on to the writings of uh, political prisoners and prisoner activists like George Jackson and others. And that's when I started to come into an understanding of the broader context in which prisons fit in the broader society, you know, the economic factors behind imprisonment, the way that people are selectively targeted for massive levels of policing, militaristic policing and incarceration, particularly the poor people and people of color and how this criminal justice system is just totally slanted on a class basis as well as as well as the uh, racial basis. And that brought me into dealing with and confronting the system at a different level, less of reacting to them in one-on-one -on -one clashes with the guards and studying history, which, and I use the voice that I gained through my writings you know, I, I sent out various writings on different subjects and artwork, and people seemed to increasingly take interest in what I was writing and my artwork, and 
I develop a larger and larger outside readership and outside support group, and I used the support that was directed toward me to give a voice to those around me and the abusive conditions that they were subjected to and the generally uh, unexposed reality of conditions inside of these institutions. That's how I really came into writing about, you know, a lot of the abuses that go on in here. So how does that actually work? How do you, if you write something, how does it get out into the world to a place where people can read it? Well, I have I have a circle of supporters who have independent media outlets and also who have contacts with other journalists, publishers, and other media outlets. I typically write an article. I send it out. It'll get transcribed by one of my supporters. And they'll then just circulate it through a network of different publishers and writers, and and people tend to just pick up if it's something that I've written that is consistent with what their media publishes and promotes. They'll pick up the article and they'll publish it. Other online publishers will pick up the articles, et cetera. So it's like I have a, a network that acts as a repository for my articles. They automatically are posted on my website and others who are interested in the various things that I write about, like I said, if it's consistent with something that they are putting out there in their media, they'll pick the article up and they just can freely use whatever I send out, articles, artwork, etc. It sounds like it takes a lot of effort in this situation for you to try and get your word out. I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what are you hoping to accomplish from sharing your perspective, sharing your stories? At a tactical level, to stop a lot of the abuse that goes on, to try to to try to build a broader base of support on the outside and base of empathy on the outside for what really goes on inside of these prisons, whereas prison officials and politicians who receive their funding and their support from the corporations that grow rich off of these institutions, they actively and deliberately portray false ideas and false images and concepts about what these prisons are really about and what really happens in here. So my thing is to try with what leverage I can to change the false narrative of what prison is like in America, what really goes on in here, to give, build these guys support on the outside where their voices can be heard and pressure can be brought to bear to rein in a lot of the abuse, to change the the facts of ongoing enslavement, which is practiced inside the U.S. prison, where prisons are compelled to perform extensive, extreme labor without payment in many cases, or in most cases, they're paid only pennies an hour, which is consistent with sweatshop conditions. And likewise, in Texas, they literally have an antebellum plantation system form of forced labor down there. The prisoners grow all their food. They, they still work in cotton fields. They grow some of the most difficult to grow tend and harvest crops like okra and other crops that are just, just in order to tend these crops by hand, it, 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 it compels brutal conditions. And they enforce this labor by force of violence. And they do not give them modern technology. They deliberately don't give them modern technology to plant, tend, and harvest these crops. They're just given a handheld hoe, like something back in the Middle Ages or something, peasants. And they're forced to plant these crops, to hold the ground, to break up the ground, 
They use handheld uh, uh, tools to cut down trees, to clear fields, and they have squads, chain gangs that perform this labor in Texas all across the state. They also have similar conditions in Florida where I was. And what many people don't know is this form of slavery still exists in America. And this is something that we also also uh, are trying to struggle to build a movement to change, which is the 13th Amendment allowing or legalizing slavery in America for those who have been technically convicted of a crime. And as I said, these are pretty barbaric conditions that prisons are forced to labor under without the protections that laborers in society have. There's no overtime. There's no insurance. There's no health benefits. There's nothing. They're not even given the adequate nutrition of people who are forced to labor under these arduous conditions, such as even slaves in antebellum times were given. Where they were given uh, five or 6,000 calories of food a day because of the, the exertion of working manual labor out in the hot sun. Prisons in Texas don't receive that. They receive the same typical 2,000-calorie diet a day or less. And as I said, it, it, it's brutal. It's enforced by physical brutality and violence and terror by prison staff who beat prisoners, who force them to lock them in sweat boxes or make them assume what are called stress positions where they'll make them kneel down on rocks or hold their arms out to their side if they refuse to work. They use other prisoners to beat them up if they slow the work squad down. So, uh, it, 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 it's pretty it's pretty uh, abusive and unjust and inhumane. So these are things that I would like to try to contribute to bringing public attention to and trying to change and reform these conditions. Do you have first-hand experience with the forced labor part of what you're talking about? No, because I have always refused to, to perform it. And that, again, is part of why I've classed with prison staff. No, I have witnessed it. I have lived amidst it. I have refused to participate. I refuse to accept the prison job laboring for pennies an hour or forced labor for no uh, uh, compensation at all. I refuse to do that. What happens when you refuse? Uh, you receive disciplinary reports. You receive physical abuse. <laughs> you will be placed in solitary confinement. So, um, I guess I'm curious. I mean, so part of the reason why I'm talking to you now is I've been hearing about that. You know, there's been a series of strikes happening in prisons in different forms, and there's another one. I, I guess. What do you make of the effort to to have prison strikes, and specifically of the 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 push that people are trying to make for uh, a national prison strike starting this coming week? Well, I think I think this move is very important in both exposing and winning public support for a struggle against what I have already said is pretty inhumane and brutal conditions. And the continuation of slavery in the United States, which, in fact, is outlawed under Article 4 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was enacted following World War II. It was actually written, and it was entered into by the United States. And it specifically requires that all forms of forced labor, slavery, are to are forbidden. But America still enforces this condition. And this is offensive to the projected image by America that it opposes, it opposes forced labor 
It opposes human trafficking. It opposes various forms of slavery throughout the world when, in fact, it practices it right within its own institution, and it's kept secret from the public. And these struggles are bringing growing attention to the condition, the practice, and existence of, of continuing slavery in America. And to my thinking, it is growing and raising the consciousness of more and more prisoners that this is an unacceptable abusive condition that has always been recognized in modern times as the deplorable, inhumane, and abuse which is enforced slavery. So when there is a prison strike, I, I guess I'm curious, could you describe if there is a prison strike happening, what have you seen that people are doing or that people are doing differently? There are various forms of resistance that have taken place and are anticipated. There have been refusals of prisons to turn out to work, which is they refuse to go into the fields and perform forced labor. They refuse to work inside of these uh, uh, corporate structures that they have inside the prisons where people are forced to work and produce various uh, little technological uh, uh, things and for different uh, technological companies like computer parts, that sort of thing. And others have taken their resistance to engaging in hunger strikes, uh, refusal to eat. Others have taken their forms of resistance to are disrupting prison operations. Some have taken the forms of refusing to spend money in the prison commissaries, which exploit prisoners and their families to an extreme level by charging them usurious prices for low-quality, unhealthy foods that are sold on the commissary, mostly snack foods, and, and their efforts to consolidate and to allow prisoners to understand that a nonviolent resistance to more organized resistance that is directed more toward the economic aspect of prison oppression and slavery is the most productive and the most effective as opposed to just, you know, engaging in physical disruption or violence and that sort of thing. And that is always what the prison system is going to try to project any struggles against their abuses as some riot or some violent insurrection as opposed to a very conscious struggle against abuse. Is there anything you expect to see or to do or to be happening um, with the prison strike, that start, I believe it starts August 21st, is that right? And it ends on September the 9th. The September 9th date is to commemorate the 1971 uprising in Attica State Prison that was crushed in violence. It was a peaceful protest against abuses in prisons in New York. The August 21st date was the, the assassination of George Jackson by um, prison guards. Could you say a word about who George Jackson is, was? George Jackson was a political prisoner who was incarcerated initially for supposedly robbing a gas station of a couple of dollars. And he was tricked into taking a plea agreement where he was told he was only going to receive, you know, a year or less. And he ended up being sentenced to a year to life. And he served the remainder of his life in prison. He became politically conscious while incarcerated. He became a uh, leading member of the original Black Panther Party and the founder of the first prison chapter of the Black Panther Party. And he became a voice of the imprisoned who, through his writings, uh, initially his book, Solidarity Brother, which was published in 1970, 
where he wrote, which, which published various letters he wrote to his family and lawyers and other people, where he scathingly exposed and critiqued the U.S. capitalist imperialist system, the political economy that preyed on poor and oppressed people and people of color, the, uh, the prison system, and he exposed a lot of the internal contradictions and abuses of the U.S. prison system. And it gained him a wide, you know, widespread uh, um, recognition and support publicly. And he actually affected a large cultural change within the prisons as far as raising prisoners' consciousness about their actual role as politically oppressed people as opposed to accepting being, you know, reduced to characterization as just simple criminals. And he, because of his work and the broad exposure he brought to the prison system, he was assassinated by prison guards in uh, September 21st, 1971, where they, they concocted a claim that he attempted to escape and he had smuggled a, a submachine gun into the prison under a wig, which was proven in court to have been totally ridiculous and impossible. And they claimed he attempted to escape and broke out of the uh, solitary confinement unit and went out into a, rec a recreation yard where he supposedly had some explosives and tried to blow the wall down in the prison. And they assassinated him and shot him twice. Uh, the, the trajectory of the bullets showed that he was shot at close range, whereas they claimed that they shot him while he was running, trying to uh, escape from a guard tower. But he became a very prominent voice for the prison movement of that era, and he still resonates. His writings still resonate to most prisoners today. As I said, his writings were a large part of what brought me into uh, political consciousness and raised me from being one inclined to just rebel against guards in one-on-one -on -one clashes to realizing that the system that I live in and the system that I see every day around me is actually a part of uh, an overall decadent, corrupt, and exploited political system and economic system that needs to be fundamentally changed. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. Hi, I'm Benny Becker, a reporter for WMMT in Whitesburg, Kentucky. You're listening to my interview with Kevin Rashid Johnson. We spoke by phone two days before the start of the 2018 national prison strike. So there's this strike that's about to start. What kind of history do you see that fitting into? Well, it's, it's kind of a both old and a new form of resistance and movement. You had initially the older prison movement, which was during the era of George Jackson, where there was a large movement that was both informed by and informed an outside political movement that was challenging the economic status quo, the exploitation and the perpetuation of wide-scale wars in the interest of economic profit to those at the higher echelons of society in America. And you had an outside movement that was challenging the power structure and the status quo. And this, in turn, informed the inside movement that was exposing and challenging the status quo and how that connected to or linked up with the oppressive conditions and the existence of prisons at such a large and massive scale inside of the United States. That movement was largely suppressed, especially after George Jackson and his influence was suppressed when he was assassinated. And the method that they used which was in response to his influence and the 
uprising was they began what became a, a proliferation of solitary confinement units, and they being called uh, 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 control units at the time, and then came to be called supermax prisons and supermax units. And the perpetuation of these units was to contain the, the mass resistance that was taking place inside the U.S. prisons, and such as was modeled on the Attica uprising, and to isolate those who were seen to be political leaders within the prisons. And in fact, Ralph Ahrens, who was a warden at the Marion Control Unit, which opened in 1972, shortly after the Attica uprising and the assassination of George Jackson at the first control unit, he admitted that the, the purpose of uh, the control units were to suppress revolutionary ideas both inside of prison and in society at large. So the control units, these massive solitary confinement institutions and units that are now so widely used today were a tactical and conscious response of the power structure to prisoners becoming politically conscious and rising up in resistance to the brutal and abusive conditions that were exposed and that existed back in the 60s and 70s. Okay, with this mass proliferation of control units came also uh, increasing exposure and resistance to solitary confinement. Now, solitary confinement had been previously found to be torture, terrorism, and cruel and unusual abuse by the United States Supreme Court back in the 1890s in a case uh, titled Henry Messi. And it was banned by the United States Supreme Court. And they, in fact, let a man off death row who was challenging solitary confinement at that time and released him because of the abusive conditions of solitary. So the power structure knew as far back as the 1890s that solitary confinement is torture and abuse. But they implemented it again, as I said, in response to the rising consciousness and resistance of prisoners, peaceful resistance, in fact, to the abusive conditions that were being more and more exposed to the public back in the 60s and 70s. So, with again, with the proliferation of these solitary confinement units came a response in resistance to those conditions as well as repeated attempts to resist the abusive and brutal conditions inside U.S. prisons. And this, this largely consolidated with the massive hunger strikes that took place in California in 2011 and 2013, where there were three hunger strikes staged by thousands of prisoners. The first hunger strike in 2011 involved 6,000 prisoners. The second hunger strike involved 12,000 prisoners. The third hunger strike in 2013 involved 30,000 prisoners. So you had, in each case, thousands of prisoners went on massive hunger strikes for three weeks and more, protesting the abuses and torturous conditions of solitary confinement and other abuses. And it was centered around one of the major solitary confinement units in California, which was Pelican Bay. Okay, when the prisoners saw that they won international support through their peaceful protest and they're, in fact, resorting to such torturous and extreme levels of resistance showing that they were being brutally mistreated. And they won such a broad base of outside support, it made them more and more conscious that through publicity, through struggle, through peaceful protests, this could win them both public support and more leverage in challenging the abuses of prison. You said you've been in solitary for years and years. Uh, so I guess, uh, how do you or how do other people... Um, who are themselves locked up find out about things like this, about strikes that are happening 
in prisons across the country? How how does word get around? Well, you got the inside prison grapevine. You got some ingenious efforts made by various support groups on the outside who have managed to get word in through various methods that I'm not going to elaborate on here. But it's a combination of outside supporters devising various methods and means of getting the word into prisons and then prisons on the inside being able to pass words ear to mouth or mouth to ear within the institutions. So then, I mean, I'm curious if people in a prison hear that people other places are planning a strike or are already striking, like... If it's spreading, that means then some of these people, I guess, are deciding that we should do that, too. And I'm curious, like, how does that, how have you seen, like, the work of organizing? I mean, it's, it's kind of like organizing a union, like, but how, how do you see that happening in prisons? Like, how, how does that work? Again, uh, a lot of it, a lot of it, to my thinking, is based on the level of outside support prisons they get. Most prisons feel powerless and isolated, which again is a large part of why I try to publicize and bring public attention and support to what goes on in here. A lot of prisons accept or submit to being brutalized and abused, and they knuckle under the abuse just like slaves did back in antebellum times and poor blacks did during Jim Crow. They accept that the system is structured against them where they have no power. They have no right to resist, and any attempt to resist will lead to the most brutal, arbitrary forms of violent repression, including murder by guards. So when they see that there is publicity, there is outside support, which, as I said, was a large part of what emboldened and encouraged the California prisons to step up or up the ante in their their hunger strikes. When they see outside support, outside organizers, outside protests, and they realize they're not alone, this tends to both embolden and to encourage prisons to stand up to oppose their abuses. And uh, it, it 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 takes on sort of an organic form on the inside. Just the the abuse, oppression breeds resistance. And people who are abused only need a certain nudge in a certain direction to spontaneously resist. You know, you've had massive spontaneous resistances and, and, and insurrections and all those sorts of things in oppressive societies. And you have the same thing inside of prisons, which they, they catch on and spread in an organic manner. But with a lack of a tactical strategic leadership, they tend to peter out or they tend to burn themselves out and the status quo reasserts itself. And that can be a problem with what goes on inside these prisons and their struggles and their efforts to resist this, which is why they need a structured, strategic, outside support, an outside-inside support base and sources of communicating to the outside what's going on in here and the outside being able to help them coordinate and organize their forms of resistance and to explain to the public why this resistance is going on so that the power structure can't be allowed to simply monopolize the narrative, trying to distort this as just a bunch of mindless uh, prisoners, violent criminals, bucking the system, acting like a bunch of animals, when in fact there's a very real reason behind 
why they're challenging the conditions they're challenging, and they are conditions that are unacceptable to any civilized society. What would you want people listening to understand about the, the people who are involved with prison strikes and what their reasons are for, for I guess, doing what they choose to do? Yeah, these are people who are victims of social injustice, who have been reduced to absolute powerlessness and reduced to submission to the absolute arbitrary power of people who hide behind badges, who hide behind state power. And this is an environment that perpetuates the, the worst forms of abuse and brutality because it's hidden from the public. The public doesn't cannot see inside the prisons. They cannot see come into the prisons and tour what you know to see what actually occurs in these places. And as said, I have witnessed, I had experienced abuses almost daily that are on a par with what you read about in in the history of what was done by the German Nazis to the Jews and the Gypsies and the Poles, you know, what occurred during the, the, the antebellum and Jim Crow South that reality exists inside of American prisons. And the public really needs to understand that no matter, and you see it now, just just, just, just envision or understand that this is a system that has no moral dilemma about destroying families, which is exemplified in what has been going on in the, the, the border down, with, uh, you know, the Mexican-U.S. border where they are willing, just as a deterrent to people fleeing a country and countries that have been devastated by historical policies of the United States, when you go back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s with America's policies in, in, in Central America, financing death squads that, that get killed, massacred peasants to drive them off the land so that American corporations could take over or, or, or you know, American assets and American public governments could uh, take over in the, in the region. They destroy their families. They've compel multiple people to flee, force people in poverty when they fled the, the rural areas into the cities and they became involved in gangs in order to survive. And they fled to the United States and became involved in similar organizations as a means of trying to survive in, in urban areas. You're talking about orphan children. And, and now when these people seek to flee countries that have been devastated by U.S. policies in America, tells them, oh, okay, well, there's a deterrent to giving you some sort of help or support or finding a way out of these horrible conditions that we created for you in your country, we're going to take your children from you. This is the sort of mentality that's behind this sort of dysfunctional social system and political economic system. And you have the same mentality that exists in these people that run these prisons. They don't consider, or it's never been considered, that people who are sent to prison in America are torn away from their children. And the conditions of crime and poverty in America are systematically created by the economic system that is controlled by a small, rich minority. People are poor. People commit crimes because of social conditions, economic conditions, lack of resources. Uh, 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 crimes of passion are committed out of frustration. People become addicted to drugs, trying to cope with a miserable existence. People commit economic crimes trying to survive. Just like, as I said, when I was compelled to live in urban areas amongst the poor, the only outlet or the only form of survival was to engage in drug trade. That's a reality I live and I witness. And people who sell drugs do just as hard labor as people who work inside of a factory. They have to stand on the corner, hand-to-hand transactions, in the cold. It's really just another form of labor, but it's the only form of labor that exists for people in 
impoverished conditions. And as I said, this whole social structure is set up like that. And these people who are inside of these prisons are the victims of this sort of dysfunctional social system that doesn't want to show and reveal the reality of how this whole structure operates. I'm curious. I mean, can you imagine a justice system that you would support or that you would think would be a good thing? Can you imagine what that would look like? I certainly can. It would be a system where there would be control by the masses of people over the institutions that exist to promote power, to uh, distribute resources amongst the people, as you're talking about food, clothes, and shelter, entertainment, etc. Those are economic necessities of society. And those who have control over these economic institutions should be those who contribute most of their labor to the economic system and those who most need the resources distributed amongst them, just like in a communal village. Those who do the labor should be the ones who own the wealth of society, not those who do the labor live at the bottom of society, economically unstable, without the necessary institutions in place and resources in place where they can live security, securely. They can have access to needed medical care, food, clothes, shelter, etc. You know, with the way it's structured in, in these capitalistic and imperialist countries, you got a small group of people who monopolize all of this that live at the top of society. They don't perform any labor. All they do is administrate the system and grow filthy rich off of everybody else's labor. And that's a dysfunctional backward system. And this is a system that produces, extracts resources, extracts wealth from people's labor, from nature, that is destroying society, that's destroying the planet. And the people who are forced to suffer the worst in reaction in response to these conditions have no say so over anything. They can't control what is produced, what medical uh, uh, Benefits are available to who? you got a small group of rich people who call all these shots over the masses of working and poor people. And that's a dysfunctional backward system. So that, that's really interesting to hear. Um, but I, I guess I'm also, I'm curious, you know, if, if that is what society becomes or that is what the world becomes, what, what would prisons become or what would fill the role of prisons? What would you imagine happening to people who are, you know, causing harm to others? I would see prisons as being transformed into institutions where you don't isolate men from women, you don't isolate children from their families and parents, where people are healed, where there are treatment factors in place that will, for, for those who deviate from social norms and what's socially acceptable, for them to be given the resources that they need to survive for them to be given examples and given positive reinforcement. Like you have prisons in other countries. I think in some of the Nordic countries, for example, where they actually prepare people for reentry into society. You don't have these massive long prison sentences. You don't have millions of people locked up in prison. And their, their, their systems are structured where people leave the institutions and go into society, perform labor, perform responsible tasks, and they are systematically reintegrated back into society. Prison is not somewhere like in America where you just warehouse people, you enslave people, you create people, or you create monsters of people that you put in here who end up coming out worse than when they came in. And like, like, I, like I stated, the Supreme Court acknowledged that 
solitary confinement is torture. It drives people crazy. It makes them dysfunctional. Why would you massively confine people in solitary confinement and then release them to society? And this, these are factors behind why you have such a high recidivism rate in America, why you have such a high crime rate in America, why people who come out of prison become career criminals. Prisons are largely places where people are taught how to become criminals. They're not brought in here and given any healing. They're not brought in here and taught anything. They're not brought in here and given the values that they need or given examples that they need to integrate into a positive, functional society. This, would, this is what would be necessary in a truly democratic, a truly stable, a truly functional society. Prisons wouldn't be prisons as they exist today. They would be places like hospitals where people are healed. Is there anything you would want to say specifically if there are people out there who are listening who are themselves locked up or who have themselves spent time in jails or prisons or, or around them? Yes, yes. I would, first of all, want them to understand that they have been victims of social injustice. They are not just criminals. They are not the mistakes that they make. And that the way that they have been characterized by society, the way that they've been isolated and deprived of resources when they have returned to society. Hold on. Yeah, okay, you hear me? I had to stop talking. Cars called in my cell on the intercom. Okay, um, that... That they, that they, by and large, can and should consolidate what they know about prison to bring about support for and changes in prisons as well as for the, the community of people in society who have left these places. And that they should do more and do what they can to educate the public about what these places are really like. I think the other big group of people who could be listening are people who don't have direct experience with the criminal justice system. Is there any one thing you'd want to be sure that people understand, I guess, about your experience, about what the system is, and also about what is happening with this movement that's been um, promoting prison strikes? I really want them to understand why struggle is necessary, why it's happening. I want them to really understand, and I could articulate it probably in greater detail and more clarity, but what really, really prison is about in America and why it's not solving social problems. Why do you have 2.3 million people in prison in America when imprisonment in America has not solved the problem of crime? Why do you have thousands and thousands of laws in place to allegedly punish people for violating the norms of society, when enforcement of these laws supposedly has brought no social order, no social peace, no justice to anybody. The public needs to understand that at billions of dollars in taxpayer expense, you are operating the largest slave system, largest prison system in the world to no social benefit. It has had no impact on so-called crime. The people who are targeted within prison, by and large, do not receive due process. Most people who come to prison, 95% of the people in prison are in prison by coercion. They are forced to plead guilty by coercion and threat. 
enter into what are called plea bargains. These are documented statistics. So you've got only 5% of the people who come to prison in America actually receive trials by their peers, which is constitutionally required. The rest come to prison because judges, prosecuting attorneys, and state-appointed defense attorneys who work with the prosecuting attorneys and judges coerce a, prisoner or coerce a person to plead guilty many times to crimes they didn't commit or crimes that are grossly exaggerated from what they actually are alleged to have committed. And because of fear of lack of resources to stage an adequate defense to fight the charges, they will plead guilty, hoping that they will get reduced sentences. So there is no justice at any level in the U.S. criminal justice system. Why would you promote, why would you support, why would you enforce a system? You have one minute remaining. Again, that solves no problem. Would you want to, I, I just have two more questions, but I don't want to get it cut off. Would you mind calling back just one more time? All right. Hold on. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. This is a prepaid call from an inmate in the Virginia Department of Corrections, Sussex One State Prison. All right. All right. Um, I guess I'm wondering... I'm wondering, is there anything in particular that you're hoping that this recording could accomplish? Uh, again, to get the reality of what's going on in here out there, to give a voice to those in here who are voiceless and who are completely powerless. Politically, they have no political representation. Prisoners are, are not allowed to vote. But we have no political voice. We are literally slaves. And to have the public understand this and to come out in support of us as the most disempowered, the most perpetually preyed upon, and the most marginalized people in American society. I guess hearing you say that, I mean, I know that there are a lot of big feelings that come up with connecting African-American community people and with the slave identity. I'm curious if... I mean, what was the process like for you to come to a point where you are now describing yourself as a slave? Was that, like, emotionally difficult to grapple with, or is that something that helped you reckon with what you see as your reality? It comes It comes both viscerally and cognitively. It comes from my already being inclined to oppose and to resist what I find to be abuse and oppression. On top of that, it comes with my having done an extensive amount of study, both historically, politically, economically, et cetera, that puts it into the factual reality of what it is. Slavery is in a condition where a people are forced to labor to produce wealth through unremunerated labor. That is technically exactly what exists in American prisons. Beyond that, the 13th Amendment specifically states that slavery is abolished except against those who have been convicted of crimes. So it is both the legal reality in America, it's a factual reality, and this is what I have both lived and it is what I understand through both political, legal, and other studies that are the documented facts of what existence in American prisons is. Is there, 
is there anything that you're worried about with this recording and what might might come of it? I've been subjected to every level of abuse. <laughs> I've been subjected to physical violence. I've been subjected to solitary confinement. I've been subjected to, as now, various levels and various conditions of social isolation, isolation amongst my peers. I've been tortured. I've been starved. I've been dehydrated. I've been... I've gone on hunger strikes till I was at the point of death. No, I'm not. I'm not really concerned about what may happen to myself. No, my concern is to act as a vehicle to the greatest extent possible to bring a voice to and bring support for and bring exposure to prisoners and the conditions that they are forced to live under. And the reality versus the the fairy tale picture of prisons as I guess vacation resorts that prison officials like to try to portray to the public. So while there are very realistic dangers in what I do, and I have suffered all of them, as said, because of my publicizing abuses in prison, they sent me to the most abusive prison system in the country. And Texas is known and not acknowledged by the courts to be one of the most abusive prisons in the country. They sent me to the most violent prison in Texas, which was the clinic unit. Then they sent me to Florida, which is known to be, and you can, anybody can simply go and scan uh, uh, articles in the Miami Herald. Florida is the most abusive, brutal prison system in the country. Prison, it, it literally has the highest death rate of prisoners in the United States with every year since 2014 setting a new record. They literally are murdering, lynching prisoners in Florida. I've witnessed them beat several prisoners to death, one of whom somehow was revived, but they brutally beat those prisoners, terrorizing prisons in Florida at a level that I have not seen elsewhere. And these were prison systems that I was deliberately sent to with the very purpose of subjecting me to physical harm and isolation. They, they, they decided to send me, and like I said, you can read the documentation on these prison systems. These are two of the most abusive prison systems in the country, acknowledged by the courts and acknowledged in the media. Why would they send me to these two prison systems? Except that they deliberately chose them for purposes of subjecting me to harm. So I've lived that. I exposed the abuses there in those prison systems the same way that Virginia did when I publicized what was going on there and I was involved in resisting that. They kicked me out. And now Virginia has taken me back. So, because apparently now they've lost options for those willing to take me because of my involvement in publicizing abuses in each prison system I've been to. And they may send me to another state. They may send me to somewhere worse. They may send me to ADX, Colorado, underground somewhere. This is what they do. But am I deterred by that? No. Do I feel that you should pull any punches with this interview or anything because of those threats? No. People suffered a lot worse fighting against oppression historically. Part of what comes with being a part of a struggle against oppression is accepting that there will be repercussions. So I'm, I'm satisfied with what I do and I accept the consequences of that. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk. 
If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can visit our website at www.wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk on SoundCloud or Stitcher. From all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.